you are big when we are small, that you are kind, that you are generous, that you are God. And so, Father, we ask please this morning as we once again look to you, as we once again think about being like you, about being wise like you are wise, that you would help us, please, to see with your eyes, to love with your heart, that we truly might be like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We started this last three weeks with the tag, the catchphrase, be like God. I thought, you know, it'll be nice. It'll give us this sense of continuity across three weeks. We, we can use it as a springboard. Be like God. It's a useful phrase. Maybe even it'll challenge us a little bit, right, as we think about what God is like and what we are like. Perhaps we might, there might be a few little things as we think about God. And Perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised, but to my surprise, it turns out that God is rather big. That to be like God, in fact, has been an extraordinary challenge. It's brought us face to face with the one who is so much more than anything we dream of. Now, I don't know what effect the last couple of sermons have had upon you. Maybe as you've heard this talk, as we've talked about money and God, your heart has been swelled. You've been encouraged. Your commitment has been renewed. Your generosity has been affirmed. As we've spoken of the examples of what it looks like to be truly godly with money, you've thought, yes, that's me. Your love has been praised. You love God and you love others. And so your faith has been strengthened. Maybe that's been you. But perhaps, and I place myself in this second category, perhaps it's more accurate to describe it as a crisis of faith. Do I see money the way God does? Do I trust God or do I trust money? Perhaps your loves, like mine, have been questioned. Do I truly love like God? Our generosity has been exposed. Oh, we give, yes, but we give out of our abundance. There's no sacrifice. It never hurts. And so even though... Our hearts are downcast. Once again, we are renewed in our commitment. Our faith is strengthened. We are turned once again back towards the God who thankfully forgives us and transforms. And so it was almost with a sense of desperation that I spent this week coming to the topic of wisdom and prudence. Surely, surely somewhere in the Bible... There is a passage that allows, no, that commands me to keep some of my wealth. Surely it's in there, some prudence. How much more Christian a topic do you want? We've turned it into a name for ladies, right? I mean, that's, that's what we do with the most Christian virtues, we, prudence. So you can imagine my fears growing throughout the week. As scouring the scripture, I, I, I could only find a handful of, of verses, and all of them in Proverbs at that, that speak in any way positively about saving, about the acquisition of wealth. Now, of course, quantity doesn't matter. I mean, if there's one verse in the Bible, it is the Word of God. If there is one verse that tells us something, then we need to believe it, we need to live it. Quantity doesn't matter. But when we contrast, well, the wealth of teaching that warns us about the dangers of money. When we see the vast quantity of scriptures that encourage, that exhort, that extol generosity and giving it away, and then we find this little handful that in any way positively speak of the acquisition of wealth. We come to wisdom. We come to this topic of prudence, which I think for many years, has been seen as one of the great bastions of Christian teaching that, in fact, we use as an excuse for a whole lot of idolatry. Now, we'll come more to that, but let's jump into Proverbs first because the Bible does say that we are to be like God in wisdom. We are to be wise with our wealth. Now, I've got a bunch of Bible verses uh, 
that are up there. There you go. Uh, we're going to run through them. This is just in case you don't get to write them down as we go, right? The words writing down, take notes. Uh, your bulletin, your outline is in your bulletin, except that there's about half missing. Okay, so, so the sermon is twice as long as your notes. It's okay, it won't be that long, but it's just in the notes, so make sure you leave space. Now, Proverbs, Proverbs gives us an insight into how we live wisely in God's world. Under God, what are the things that work in the world? What does it mean to live as a wise person? And Proverbs is first of all concerned, when we come to this question about acquiring and storing up wealth, it's concerned with how we gain our wealth. How do we gain our wealth? So let's jump into Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 10. Now, by the way, we are going to have time for questions after this sermon. So if you've got things over the last three weeks that have been kind of bugging you and rattling away, um, we will have a time to ask those. Sorry, Proverbs is concerned with how we gain wealth. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, don't give in to them. If they say, oh, come along with us, let's lie in wait for someone's blood, let's waylay some harmless soul, let's swallow them alive like the grave, whole like those who go down to the pits, we will get all sorts of valuable things, fill our houses with plunder, throw in your lot with us, we'll share a common purse. My son, don't go along with them. Don't set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into sin, they are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net in full view of all the birds. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Notice this verse. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to go about acquiring wealth. And the way of the sinner leads only to destruction. Proverbs chapter 6, that first reading. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 6. Now it's worth looking these up as we go. Chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. He has no commander, no overseer, no ruler. You don't see one little ant with the crown giving orders, right? They're just running around. And yet this ant stores up its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. There is a right time to go about acquiring wealth. The ant knows, instinctively I take it, that it is now time to harvest, for soon there will be none. The winter comes, we hunker down, we enjoy what we have. We eat the food that we have gathered. And yet notice verse 9, How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's not an instruction. Don't do it now. And poverty will come on you like a bandit, scarcity like an armed man. The lazy person ends in ruin. The worker works and enjoys the reward. Now notice that foresight is commendable. To know now is the time to harvest, for soon it will be winter, that is the right thing to do. Know what's going to become. Don't be lazy. Work hard. Okay, Proverbs chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 4. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. No, work hard. Gather during the harvest. There is wisdom in prudence, in looking ahead, making sure that we gather resources when it is time to gather. And we work in a way, well, that is diligent, rather than sleeping and being lazy. Chapter 12, verse 11. He who works his land will have abundant food. He who chases fantasies lacks judgment. Well, you don't, don't daydream. Don't pursue foolish endeavours. There seems to be no end of get-rich-quick schemes. Well, the Christian, the wise way to act is to work the land, work hard. 
Don't speculate. Chapter 13, verse 11. Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Again, there's no fast track, especially if it involves dishonesty, especially if it involves injustice and sin. Be content gathering little by little. Do you have a dream of those, you know, oh, if only I could, I could find the shares that are going to grow by 50% and put all of my money into it for just one year and bam, massive capital injection. And from there I can, little by little, the wise man gathers. Chapter 21 and verse 20. 21, 20. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. But a foolish man devours all he has. The wise person is disciplined. They are able to deny themselves the pleasure of the now for the sake of what will be in the future. The wise man, he has this good oil, the choice food, whereas the foolish man just devours all he has. That's a very Christian idea. Very Christian, to deny yourself now for the sake of what is to come. That's our life, right? We deny ourselves now for the sake of the eternal dwelling in which we will live. And it is right to do that with our wealth. Chapter 27 and verse 23. 27, 23. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches don't endure forever. A crown isn't secure for all generations. When the hay is removed, new growth appears, the grass from the hills is gathered in, the lambs will provide you with clothing, goats with the price of a field. You will have plenty of goat's milk to feed you and your family and to nourish your servant girls. Know the state of play. Recognise that there are times of plenty and that there will be times of want and plan accordingly. Right? Buy a goat. There you go, there's your financial advice from today. No, don't actually, goats are horrible. Buy a sheep if you're going to buy something nice. Although sheep's milk, goat's milk, eh, anyway. Proverbs is concerned with how we gain wealth. It commends foresight. It commends hard work. It commends prudence. It commends discipline. See, as far as the right of the Proverbs is concerned, there is a righteous way to gain wealth. However, we need to keep that hand in hand with the second thing that Proverbs is concerned with. See, Proverbs is concerned with our attitude towards wealth. Before we get too carried away thinking, oh, brilliant, the wise person makes a whole ton of cash, well, notice the attitude that we are supposed to have towards money. Now we're going to run through again, going back to Proverbs 11. I've changed the verses that are on the screen if you need to write them down. Proverbs 11 and verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Oh, money's good. Acquire wealth by all means, but know that in the end it will do nothing. In the day of wrath. Much better is righteousness that will see you through. Righteousness, in fact, that delivers from death. Chapter 16 and verse 8. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. I mean, did we need to put it any more clearer than that? If you are going to become rich through dodgy means, then remain poor. And stay righteous. Chapter 16, verse 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold to choose understanding rather than silver? Hey, your wealth is good. But to know the right way to live in God's world is even better still. Chapter 23 and verse 4. I love this one. It's a direct rebuke to our age. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. But have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. What a great picture. Come back money, come back and it's gone. Isn't that us, right? Oh, I can't do that, I'm busy. And what do we mean by busy? I'm working. And why are we working? Because we're in this constant pursuit to get rich. And then we wear, oh, I'm so tired. 
I was busy yesterday and I'm tired today. It's the constant, relentless pursuit of wealth, which is pointless because you look at it and it's there and you look away and you look back and it's gone. Like this little eagle flying off into the sky carrying a turtle. Right? It's just... Or the last one, Proverbs 30, verse 7. We've heard this one before. The proverb of King Agur. Two things, he says, of the Lord. Two things I ask of you before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. That's the first one. And he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. See, if I become poor, I may steal and dishonor you. And if I become rich, well, even worse, I might turn your back on you, God. It's good to acquire wealth. Poverty is never commended. Poverty never says, the Bible never says poverty is good, that it's somehow really holy to, to, to live in a hovel and to not have anything. There's nothing wrong with being poor. In fact, at the last day, whether you're wealthy or poor won't matter one bit. Whether you are righteous will matter. However, poverty is not commended. We are wise to manage our wealth well. In fact, if you remember, uh, six, six, two weeks ago, we outlined six reasons why we should be wise with our wealth. Do you remember what they were? The six areas that Christians have responsibilities. We have things to do with our money that we are required to meet. And so we are wise. But going even beyond that, if you remember last week, the Christian heart beats with the heart of Jesus. So that when we see our wealth, what we see is an opportunity to do good for others. If I could summarise this whole topic of prudence and wisdom, I think I would summarise it like this. The heart wants to give it all away. That's the Christian heart. To be like Jesus. The heart wants to give it all away. And wisdom stops us. Now that's kind of back to front in many ways, isn't it? I mean, we think of money as, I'm going to gain as much as I possibly can and then I'll give some of it away. Isn't that how we think? The Christian view is the opposite. I want to give it all away. I want to use my wealth for the benefit of other people. But, but unfortunately, I have to keep some of it for the sake of those who depend upon me. Think about it this way. Let's use the imagery of being a steward. Okay, So there's a king and the king is about to go away for a while and he says to his steward, I'm entrusting, you've got the key to the treasury, I'm entrusting you with my wealth for you to use for the good of the kingdom. Now, if the steward then goes and blows it all on himself, he uses money that is supposed to be for the good of the kingdom for his own private purposes, what's going to happen when the king comes back? Is he going to praise him? Of course not. In fact, wait, I mean, there's, there's an example just in public life, public politics. Can you think of an example of someone who took public money and used it for their own private purposes? Right, we call that person Bronwyn Bishop. And what happened to her? Boom. I mean, we know that. If you are entrusted with someone else's money, you use it for their good, not for your own. And we are stewards of God's wealth. It's not ours. He said, here you go. Use it for the good of my kingdom. We like to think, well, how much can I gain that I might give away a little? The Christian heart is, I will give it all away. Ah, I have to keep some back. Now, if you missed last week's talk, that, that, that was really the point. That first bit, the Christian heart wants to give it all away, generosity, that was the point of last week. If you missed it, please grab a copy and listen to it. We recorded it. It's available on the website. You go to barneysingleburn.com. You click on four regulars and then sermons. Listen to it. Meditate on it. If, you, if internet and MP3s aren't your thing, come and I can do you an audio CD, just a normal CD, put it in the car, listen to it, whatever it might be. We have to get generosity. We need to understand the Christian heart before prudence makes sense. Because otherwise, what was the first question you think of when you think prudence and saving? How much? Best question Joe started with. How much is enough? How much do I need to keep? And our answer usually is a lot. Now, we're going to consider some practical pointers. Here are the, the, the bits that are that aren't in your outline. 
these are practical ideas. These aren't biblical commands. Okay, This isn't uh, Jesus said, therefore go and do. These are some insights that I think will help us to keep evaluating our view of money and whether we are being godly. I've got five of them. Firstly, different circumstances require different approaches. Different circumstances require different approaches. There are times and then there are other times in life. And we will have different requirements placed upon us. We will have different commitments. We will have different responsibilities. We will have different people depend upon us. And so how much money it is wise to keep will depend on circumstances. Now I wonder whether this is a biblical example. In Luke chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples, go and don't take anything with you. Don't take, you know, just the imperative right now is we've got to get the gospel out. Just go. Don't take a thing. But then in Luke 22, Jesus says, oh no, bad days are coming. Make sure you have exactly the things that he told them not to have the last time. There is an example for this. Now, of course, our heart remains the same. It doesn't matter what's happening around. It doesn't matter what the circumstances of life are. Our heart remains the same. And what's our heart? I want to give it away. I want to use it for the good of other people. I want to stop hoarding it. I want to bless others. I want to see the kingdom of God grow with the wealth that he has entrusted to me. But circumstances change. So, for example, at this stage of life, I have two very small children. And so wisdom for me includes a whole bunch of financial things related to having those children and their future as dependence upon us. But the day will come when they will grow up and they will leave and they will become independent. And at that point, I will no longer require, be, it will no longer be a matter of wisdom for me to have the money to look after them. I don't need it anymore. They're gone, they're done, they're doing their thing. I don't need that. Do you get the example? Perhaps we can look ahead and we know there are sometimes I'm going to be made redundant in a year's time, right? I know that that's going to happen. Therefore, uh, I have to start saving now, right? And I've got to make sure that when that time comes, I'll have enough of a buffer to find another job. And wisdom will dictate based on our circumstances. Different circumstances, different approaches. And I think that's why this whole topic is so hard. Because really, wouldn't we just love a rule? Jesus said, you can only have $50,000 in the bank and two investment properties. Anything over that, you must get rid of. Like that will make it so much simpler, right? Most of us would be going, sweet, I love 50 grand in the bank and two investment properties. I mean, that's... But because circumstances said it, that's why it's wisdom. Number two, and uh, perhaps controversially, deliberately set limits to your wealth. Now, I'm aware that this runs completely against the spirit of our age. Our age is all about grow your net wealth. Full stop. Doesn't matter what part of your life you're in. Doesn't matter. What, you must keep growing. Wealth keep growing. Now, how do we justify the accumulation of wealth? I can think of two reasons. Maybe you can share more with me afterwards. Number one is the just-in-case reason. I need to have a bigger buffer just in case. I don't know what's going to happen in life. Anything might happen. And I need to have enough money in the bank to get me through whatever that circumstance is. That's one reason. The second reason is, and it requires a degree of honesty to acknowledge, to admit to this, but the second reason is I just want to finance my lifestyle. There are things that I want to do and in order to do them I have to have a certain degree of wealth so I'm just going to keep acquiring wealth. Now what's the problem with that? What's, what's this just in case? What are we saying? Just in case what? Who has promised to provide for us? Well God, right? God has promised to provide for us. So what's the just in case? Just in case God fails? Are we at that point not worshipping money? I mean, it becomes our God. It becomes the thing we trust in. Saving to achieve ever greater levels of financial security, the catchphrase of our age, is the worship of money. Someone said to me just recently, oh, that's very easy for you to say, David. 
You're in ministry. So of course, Matthew 6, right, that promise, of course God's going to provide for you. What? Did, did God not make that promise to you as well? That he will, that he will care? The birds, the flowers? He, he looks after them. You think you're not worth so much more to him? And so we say, I need more wealth. I need lots of money in the bank just in case God fails me. And look, if you want to have wealth to finance your lifestyle, thank you for being honest, right? At least you're being honest at that point. I, there's no, it's just I, I want to do these things and I need the money to do it. But if that is you, then please, I want you to remember that we don't live for now. We live for heaven. Those things you want to do, you will have your desires met in heaven. We will enjoy life in the presence of God there. Now is the time for sacrifice. Now is the time to use wealth to get people into heaven that they may enjoy the rewards. So the only way that I can think of of justifying accumulating wealth is to fulfil either a specific obligation or an anticipated future need. Uh, okay, imagine my car's about to break down. I know it's going to break down in two years' time. I've got two years. Now, it makes a lot more sense for me to save my money now and buy the car when it breaks down than to borrow money when I get there. It just makes a lot... It's wisdom to do that. I, I'm, I'm saving, I'm acquiring wealth, I'm accumulating wealth for this anticipated future need or to meet my specific obligations. Now, what am I saying? Well... It's almost like every dollar we have should have a tag on it. You know, the old envelopes, whatever it is. Every dollar we have has a purpose. It's not just this just-in-case cash bank, but it is this money is for this purpose, this money is for that purpose. We set the purposes for saving or for owning a valuable asset, and once that purpose is achieved, we give the surplus away. We sell the valuable asset. Well, it might make sense to have a really big house when you've got a lot of kids and sleepovers and people and ministry and all the rest of it, and then your kids grow up and leave. And what's that valuable asset now achieving? Nothing. It's achieved its purpose. Sell it. Live in somewhere that's perhaps smaller. I can still do ministry, all the rest of it. What about the bank balance? I just want to see more money go in, more money go in, more money go in, more money go in. Do you have, I don't know if you have that experience. It seems to me that every time that we hit the next milestone with the bank balance, it becomes the new default. When we first got married, uh, we had about $1,000 in the bank. And for the next four or five years, we had about $1,000 in the bank. And then one day we got to $1,500. We were like, oh, we got so much money. And then we are like, oh, no, but we can't let the balance drop below $1,500 anymore, right? That's, that's got to be now the new ignoring the fact that for five years it had been under. And then one day we hit 5,000. That was just like, oh! And we thought, okay, no, the balance can't drop below 5,000 anymore, right? That's, that's now become our new, that gets dangerous if it's below that. 10,000. Oh, no, can't go below 10. And it just, every time it creeps up, it's just like it just gets shoved forward and it can no longer fall back. It's dangerous for it to be below. Do you experience that? I've decided this week that we need to cap our bank balance. I haven't told Edwina yet. We haven't talked about it. <laughs> uh, I love. Uh, hey, you should come to our communication seminar in two weeks' time. Uh, we'll teach you how to talk and make the... In we need to put a cap on it. And it's a cap that we will hit very soon. And after that, anything that comes in beyond that, we will give it away. Deliberately set limits to your material security. For friends, it so easily becomes idolatry. Number three. See, what happens if, if okay, David, this is really nice and we give all our money away and then we have no, no buffer and, and the hard times do come? What do you expect me to do? Beg. Well, that's actually not too far off it. See, number three, I want to say this. Develop the church and your extended family as substitutes for those impersonal savings. Develop the church and extended family as substitutes for your savings. What do you think it means when the Bible speaks of us as a mutually supporting body? What does it mean 
but when one part is in trouble, the other parts look after it. I mean, we support, we build each other up, we encourage one another, and surely we help to finance one another. Now, I actually don't know what this looks like, to, to be perfectly honest. I, I think we need to be creative here, and it's going to take some really countercultural stuff. I, I have a vision, but I don't know what it looks like. It's, it's a vision of this body that is so intertwined in each other's lives that anyone who is in need is cared for by others. Now, you could do it in sort of a communist way, right, where we, we, we just all of our salaries just go into the church, into this common pool, and we appoint some more financial officers to keep the wardens accountable, and if you need money, we have ways of accessing it. I mean, that's kind of weird, right? And that's, that's really beyond anything we're comfortable with. The, the individual alternative is we all keep our own money, that's okay, but we are so enmeshed in each other's lives that we know each other's needs and we provide abundant... I, I don't know, have you ever thought of giving someone an interest-free loan out of your money? I don't know, maybe there would be some among us who need that sort of thing just to get that little bit up and, and keep going. Someone who's out of work and really struggling to pay the bills and it's becoming a bit urgent. I don't know, can we pool common goods? I mean, we already, we already do it, uh, baby clothes. If you had a baby any time recently, it's just like these bags just get passed around, right? Now, I think that that is, um, again, more, more out of the things that we have left over than necessarily going, oh, you can have what I have for your good. I, I don't know what it looks like. But surely that is the picture that we have in the Bible, a body that cares for itself. Number four. And so this is a slight change of pace from question three to four. I want to ask you a diagnostic question. We're talking this question of prudence and wisdom and is your heart right and do you love money or not? Here's a diagnostic question for you. Do you feel safe? Do you feel safe? That no matter what comes tomorrow, God's got you. That no matter what happens, God's promise of provision is to you. Do you feel safe? Or are you worried? Oh, I don't think I've got enough. I need a little bit more. I, my trust is in my wealth. There is no such thing as the completely safe asset. It doesn't exist. Right? Gold buried under your mattress is not a completely safe asset. Robbers break in, steal it, it's gone. Shares aren't a completely safe asset. The market's up one day, down the next. You're worth billions, you're worth nothing. And so if we put our trust in our assets, we will never feel safe. I always have to have that little bit more. Do you feel safe? Well, number five, and I think this is more a practical point for the whole three weeks than just this sermon in particular, but number five is this. Don't do a Felix. Don't do a Felix. Anyone remember where that saying came from? Don't do a Felix? Joe does. He was here at eight o'clock. Did you remember it before I said it? No, you were giving me these. Even Joe doesn't remember. It came from one of Joe's sermons. There you go. Last year, you remember Acts, Acts chapter 24, Paul gets brought before the governor, Felix, and he preaches God's word to him. He speaks to him of righteousness and judgment and condemnation and Felix trembles before the word of God and then turns his back and does nothing. For two more years, Paul will preach the word of God to Felix and never again did it have such an impact on him. Don't do a Felix. When you hear the word of God, act, for it may never have that impact upon you again. So what I'm saying is this. Have you heard the word of God in the last three weeks? The challenge to be like him, responsible, generous and today wise. Then do something about it. Don't walk away thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, that's nice. One day I'll act. In fact, I'm going to give you a minute now. I want you to think about the specifics. I want you to write down, because that will remind you, your phone, your calendar, your diary, what are you going to do and when are you going to do it by? 
Now maybe, maybe, let me just give you some ideas, right? Maybe you've realised that your heart isn't right, that you don't love the way Jesus loves, that you don't see your money as opportunity to do good for others, that in fact you're still in love with it. Now if that's you, commit to, I don't know, 15 minutes a day for the next month to read through the Gospels again to fall in love with Jesus again, to have him transform your heart. It has to begin there. Now maybe you've realised you're really not very good at managing your money. Okay, so commit. Before my next paycheck, I will make a budget. There's a seminar next weekend for you. Maybe you need to be a bit wiser and you need to give up your dreams of that cushy job. Passing our by opportunities that come right in front of you because they oh no, no, what I, what I really want is an off in the daydreams we go. You need to work hard. I, I don't know what it is for you. But will you take 30 seconds now to write down what are you going to do and when are you going to do it by? I want to finish by saying this. It's become abundantly clear to me in the last three weeks, very apparent, I mean, in my, in my own life as much as anything else, conversations, that it is all too easy to pay lip service to God. It's all too easy to say, oh, yes, yes, I worship God. I love him and not money. I want to live for him. And then we walk out the door and we do whatever we want. You and I, we live in times of wealth. We live in a place of wealth, abundant, extraordinary wealth. Our witness to the gospel must be that we are reckless with money. Now, reckless in in a wise way, not a foolish way. It's not reckless in we light cigars with $100 bills, right? That's not what I'm talking about. That we are reckless in profusely using our wealth for the good of others. We can afford to give away much, much, much more than we ever think we can. Don't be a hypocrite. For our God, he is faithful, and so we are to be faithful. He is generous to the point of death, and so we are to be like him. And he's wise, so be wise. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this extraordinary word. At the start of the series, Joe said Jesus talks about money more than anything else. He he warned us. And yet we blundered on in. Father, we're sorry that so often we love money instead of you. We are sorry that we put our trust in our wealth instead of in your clear and direct promise. Would you please forgive us for our sin? Father, we want to be like you. As your children, we want to show the family resemblance. And so please, would you start in the inside? Would you take the iron grip that money has around our hearts and release it, that we might be captured by your love? Father, please give us that mindset that sees the wealth that we have as being your wealth, to be used for your purposes. Would you please change us so that what we want to do with it is benefit others? Father, would you give us wisdom to see in our lives, in our circumstances, where we need to to keep a little bit for the sake of being faithful? And Father, would you do all of this for your glory, that the witness in our lives might bring many to know Jesus. Amen.
Okay. Uh, the question was how much of that obligation requires us to have money in the bank for our kids to buy property when they are older? None. I mean, that's a lifestyle decision we've made. That's a wisdom. That's, uh, there may be circumstances that in wisdom, uh, your circumstances say uh, that that is the appropriate thing to do, but the Bible doesn't speak of any responsibility that we have to provide that at all. Do, do you want me to say more or is that... No, no, I don't, not at that point. They do in when they're children. We provide for their needs when they are children. Absolutely. But once they are responsible for themselves, again, there may be wisdom and that might be a generous thing that you can do for them, but I don't see how that becomes a need that we are fulfilling in them. They can rent. They can work hard and buy their own place. Sure. And that is a blessing that you may choose to pass on. That's right. That's a wisdom case. That's right. So I'm not saying I'm not saying that it is wrong to do so. I'm saying that it is not our responsibility to do so. Now those are two different things. Circumstances, wisdom may say, I have the opportunity to do this thing that will bless them, and brilliant, do it if you can. Um, but if you find that you are you are having to deny meeting other needs for the sake of this thing, then I would say that is being ungodly. What we are called to do with our money is meet the needs that are in front of us. Now, if you fulfil your responsibilities, you're being abundantly generous. Remember, this comes down to that heart principle, right? If you want to give all of your money away, if, if we begin with that as the baseline, I see my wealth as opportunities to do good for other people, then that's, in a sense, the, the bar, the test that will mean whether I give it away. To keep it, to save it, I do it begrudgingly. It's, it's, it's a back-to-front way of looking at it, isn't it? But I think that's what the Bible calls us to do. I want to use my wealth for the good of other people. And so, if I need to keep it, I do. But it's not a command. There's no responsibility to do so. In fact, otherwise, any parent who doesn't provide their child the ability to buy some sort of property is being sinful. Is that, you may want to, you want to come back? Do you want to, you, yep? Okay, Marta? Sorry, was that Kristen? Sorry, you just lost a house. Um, Marta? <coughs> hey, what are you guys laughing about? You lost one each too. Uh, okay, so the question is about income protection. Uh, some people make that choice. If they get sick and have it, is it wrong? Uh, coming back to the, the wisdom thing, remember there circum different circumstances require different, uh, different uh, financial uh, management. Um, for me, I feel right now that it is prudent for me to have life insurance, for example, because I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old. Right? And if I die and then a duenna is left alone to, to provide for them, uh, that to me seems the wise thing to do. Those are my circumstances, things that I want to do. So the Bible doesn't really have all that much, I think, to say about insurance in, its, in and of itself. Is it right? Is it wrong to have insurance? I don't think that matters. My problem with it is that we've replaced caring for one another with insurance. I mean, how, how, how long has income protection insurance existed in the history of the world? Maybe a couple of decades. It can't be that old, right? Did people... What did they do before then? I mean, that's the thing, right? They still lived. They were still provided for when the thing going got tough. The biblical view is the family cares for each other. The church cares for each other. Someone this morning shared uh, her sister was doing it tough recently and her church refused to lease out a property that they had cheap to her um, because they wanted the money from the, the commercial rental, right? Now, to me, that's an example of a church that's doing it wrong. Now, maybe you want to lease it out, get more money, use that money to subsidise this person into rent. Sure, do it that way. I mean, that's just moving numbers around. The point is we should be utterly prepared to use our money to care for each other. There's my point. So if you have income protection insurance, you lose your job and you're getting that money from that, that's, sure, okay, that's not good, that's not bad, um, but are we caring for each other? Joe. 
same with parents providing for kids' property. Uh, well, that's not been a thing in the history of the world. We've prepped that now. Yep. Uh, and so we, we take that as normal, but it's really generous. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Joe. So lifestyle creep, right? We've become accustomed. And, and to be honest, young people, that's our problem. We've become accustomed to our parents' lifestyle and we expect that as soon as I leave home, that is the lifestyle I will have. Well, they, they didn't, right? They had to work, sacrifice, do all the things you normally do. Um, so lifestyle creep means that then we have to have insurance because if I lose my job in order to keep my lifestyle, I need to have this amount of income. And, uh, and Joe mentioned that the... Uh, the, the inheritance issue is perhaps a similar one. We want them to have our lifestyle um, rather than not. I was saying this morning to someone about, uh, about superannuation and retirement, right? Is it wise to put a whole lot of money away so that when you're old you're not a burden on someone? You can live off the pension. That's not a decision about needs. I mean, it's, it's hard and it's going to be a pretty basic life, but you can do it. Sure, okay, there's, there's, other, there's other conversations to have long term. Um, but at the same time, again, history of the world, even superannuation is pretty new and pretty cool. I mean, you're going to retire with wealth. Um, anyway, Kristen. Yeah, yeah, okay. So uh, I'm talking about giving it away kind of immediately. What about building up wealth so that we can do more good in the future? Uh, we had a similar question this morning. What about very, very rich Christians who have a lot of money? If they gave it all away, they'd be able to do less good than if they keep some of it and do a lot of good over a period of time, right? What about what about that sort of sort of balance? Um, I have a problem with it per se. I mean, you use wisdom. That's the, the wisdom bit, what's right to keep, what's wrong to give away. My problem is this. What's your heart? We keep coming back to that principle. Does your heart want to give it all away or not? Are you using the fact that, oh, no, no, I'm going to keep it so that I can bless people in the future as an excuse to keep it? Because what if somebody in need is in front of you right now? What are you going to say to them? No, no, sorry. Uh, I'm saving it up to bless you later. Yeah? So sure, there's wisdom, there's prudence, there's the ability to do that. Some people have done it with a lot of money. Um, but our heart always is, I must, I want to, I desire to meet the need that is in front of me, and the gospel need is so big. Keep moving people into heaven. Jeremy. Oh, of course. Yep. Yeah, of course. So Jeremy's comment is uh, in the history of the world, and certainly in Proverbs as we're reading, it's an agrarian society, which we no longer are. We, we use money rather than cows as, uh, as how you trade. We don't work the land in the same way that this talked about. And so we're kind of almost inventing, coming up with new ways of how to live, and we are dependent upon money. And that is ex- very true. All of that is true. Uh, I don't think it will ever be our problem, though, that we will, have, we will be on the edge of not having enough. Our problem will always be, at least in Australia where we are now, the idol of relying upon that money. But, yep. Sorry, Kate, did you want to say... The just in case. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, I don't know, what if you save up like 20 grand or something and then you die? Like, it's probably more like the bill person that you have to be. Sure. Yeah. And also, like, the family of God is big. Like, the, I, don't, I doubt very much there will be some kind of massive thing that is so big mm. and requires so much money that the family of God is. Yep. Thank you, Kate. So comments in reply to Kristen's Kristen point. Uh, you can't be generous in the future without being generous now. Um, and the family of God is big. I mean, we'll care. We'll care for each other. 
That's what it's there for. Jason. Slightly different perspective on that. Yep. What if you were to use your money to buy an investment property, for example, say there's no kind of pressing thing that's really going to be yep. Yeah, yeah, sure. So using your wealth to make more wealth in order to use that wealth to bless others. I, I don't have a problem with that. Right? Acquire that. How does Proverbs build wealth? Well, it's there. I mean, there were rich people in the New Testament. Jesus' ministry was financed largely by rich people. Um, Acts, we see some very rich individuals who do a lot of good with their wealth. Uh, wealth per se is fine. The thing is, how's your heart going? It, does your heart see every single dollar as here is an opportunity to do good for someone else? Now, if, if your heart sees that, then you go and do whatever you want with your money because your own heart will be the thing that keeps you accountable. And you might look at it and in all honesty say, I've looked at the needs in front of me right now, I've met the ones that I had to and I've been generous and been able to meet a whole bunch more. I've still got this money left. It would be really wise right now to put it somewhere where I can get more and keep doing what I'm doing. Sure. But it's your heart that's doing that at that point. Yeah, and you're not using it as an excuse to, I'm going to build more wealth. Okay, last one, if there's any last pressing one, and then we'll pray. Jeremy gets in. He wants the last word. Say it again, sorry? Yeah, what about it? Oh, sure. Thank you for giving an example of what I've just said. The rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, what does he do? His wealth grips his heart. And where does he go? To hell. Wealth in and of itself serves you for nothing. Now the poor man, he may well have gone to hell too. As it turns out, his heart was righteous and he goes to heaven. And all this rich man could think of was, if only someone had told me. Can I go back? Can I go back and tell the others, please? Fat lot of use his wealth was to him. That's this age is about putting people from here into heaven. Are you using your money to do that?